Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The the climate crisis is beginning to force a discussion about what's important in our lives, what we can do without, and how we can change to benefit everyone. Colin Bevan knows a few things about giving things up. He's best known for his book and movie No Impact Man, where he and his family live for a year with minimal impact in New York. The book and movie are still popular 10 years on. And Colin Bevan knows a few things about what benefits people. His subsequent book was called How to Be Alive, A Guide to the Happiness That Helps the World, and it's about living lives in accordance with our values. Thanks a lot for joining us, Colin Bevan. Hi, Jerome. It's nice to be with you. I wonder if you could take us on a little bit of a journey about what you learned from No Impact Man 10 years ago, and you um, moved forward with this different kind of project, which was seems to be an extension of that in a way, uh, about, about being happy in the world and uh, trying to find your people. Uh, how did you get from one to the other? Sure. So No Impact Man was a book about me and my family living as as environmentally as possible here in New York City. And it came because I had already published two history books, but I was very worried about the the wars for oil, what happens when we burn fossil fuels to our climate, and um, and the fact that people didn't seem, for all that burning of fossil fuels and destroying our client, that people didn't seem as happy as they might be. So there was this question about our way of life. And so I lived with my family um, as environmentally as possible, which doesn't mean that we didn't recycle more. It was much more radical. We didn't do anything that made trash. We didn't eat food that came from more than 100 miles away. We didn't, um, we didn't transport ourselves in any way that caused fossil fuel emissions. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And what we found out was that some of the things, for example, we got rid of our television. And uh, some of the things that we did actually made for a happier life for us because when we got rid of our television, we had a big hole in our in our daily routine, and we filled that with friends um, and um, and uh, and community, and actually found that that made for happiness. And, and so, the, one of the big discoveries of the No Impact Man experiment was that. Um, when we live in line with our values and when we live in line with what our planet needs from us as humanity, actually there's a good chance that we can become happier if we kind of put down the whole consumption, consumer economy mindset. Um, and after that book came out, I, uh, it kind of ex- it very much exploded in the press and I was, I was asked to travel around and speak around the world and Everybody kept asking, what can I do? What can I do? But what can I do in terms of helping the world is context sensitive. There's no, there's no way that somebody else can give you directions. Plus, I also believe that part of our problem is that we're all following directions instead of referring to our values inside. So how to be alive was kind of this answer to this question. Uh, what can I do? You know, you're no impact man, but what can I do? So the, the question becomes like, who are you? And what kind of a person are you? And what do you care about? And how can we find a way where you can address your life to things that you care about, while also having a prosperous, abundant, joyful life? Uh, you do some s- attacks on what you call the standard life approaches. And, um, and you make a pretty good case that, well, if you, if you don't feel some level of alienation, by the standard life approaches and the things that expectations that everyone has, you're probably, you know, not feeling things. <laughs> you're, you're not doing it right. 
Well, I, 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 w- I wouldn't actually want to criticize people who are finding that the standard life pro- approach works for them. If it works for them, it, it works for them. But, but basically, we have this, this kind of societal myth. And the myth is you, you, you go to school and you work hard so that you can get into a good college and then you take out college loans and you, go, you graduate from college and maybe you do a master's, maybe you know, even further your education and you get a job and you put away money for retirement and you find a romantic partner and have some kids and um, get a mortgage. And when you're, when you're 60 or 65 or so, all of that comes to fruition because you get to retire and hopefully go on some cruises or something like that. And meanwhile, you get to have the feeling that you've actually be con- been contributing to society by paying your taxes, which fund our social services and our fire and our police and our government and all that. So you've been contributing in that way. And you've been contributing by keeping the wheels of the economy going, too, by both working and spending. That's the kind of myth that we have. The problem is, is that, first of all, the promise of retirement is a pipe dream for many people now. So that doesn't come. And even the promise of a good job once you go to college um, or the ability to even pay back your student loans is a pipe dream for some people. So uh, in other words, the old mythology is falling apart. And even if you do manage to make it work, oftentimes you make it work while feeling you're doing it at the expense of the planet and the rest of humanity because we don't get to feel as though buying things and working hard and keeping the wheels of the economy moving is doing good because what we see is um, race injustice, uh, income inequality, planetary climate change. And so contributing to the status quo, uh, a lot of us feel a certain unease with that now. And it seems like plenty of young people, uh, I mean, Greta Thunberg is um, talking about change coming and so many young people are dissatisfied with the, the, the approach that you're, um, you're dissatisfied with there. They seem to be looking for something different. Sure. And and um, because young people are facing the failure of the myth more than any of us, they're, they're the ones that are, see, that are see, reading the news about getting totally swamped by student debt. They're, they're the ones that are hearing about climate change. And also, they're the ones that are getting taught. Like, this is the generation where, for the first time, these things are being talked about in, in school. Um, and and the, the sad thing I'd say about Greta is Greta's obviously a hero, but the sad thing I think is that um, when we when when we lionize her, what we do is we disown the hero inside us. You know, Greta's our savior. Um, when in fact, you know, a lot of what How to Be Alive is about is finding the hero or savior within yourself. Like, how do we actually accept that we're empowered to change the world that we live in too? Not just Greta, but us too. Like, we're her fellow travelers. Well, you talk about some of the stories that we tell ourselves that um, keep us from acting on our convictions and what we believe. Um, things like all people are selfish. Um, there's a kind of a, an unbeatable uh, government or corporation or capitalism or something that is that is stopping us. We're we're stuck in a system. Can you can you t- uh, say something about the bad stories we tell ourselves that keep us from? locating ourselves yeah so we we what happens is we see the suffering in the world and we sometimes we feel as though it's overwhelming and there's nothing we can do about it and so what we do is instead of staying in the tension of i see suffering i feel as though i might have some responsibility psychologically and this is perfectly natural 
we begin to construct stories about why we can't help, why we can't either help the world and the communities that we care about, and why we can't help ourselves, why we can't move away from these sociological myths. And sometimes the the story in particular that I like to talk about is is the two stories surrounding hope. Sometimes people say, "Is there hope for the world? Can we can we fix these problems?" Um, I don't particularly like that question. I, I mean, I don't blame anybody for saying it, but but the search for the answer feels irrelevant to me because what really happens when we say, "Is there hope?" is we could say, "No, there's no hope." So then we tell ourselves a story. There's no hope. There's no point me doing anything. I don't have to shake my life up, um, and I'll just stay as I am. Or Somebody says there is hope. Oh well, there's hope. So it's a fait accompli. You know, things will change for the better. So I just get to stay as I am. Now that can sound moralistic and you know, uh, uh, kind of austerely ethical. But the thing about it is, is that when we tell the, ourselves these stories that take away our own agency. Um, they actually reduce our happiness and our life satisfaction. I mean, all of us have this experience of when we tell ourselves we're not capable of doing something, it doesn't give us a good feeling. It gives us a dissatisfied feeling. So being in this place of of using stories that to dis- disempower ourselves both harms the world because we're not out there trying to bring about the world that we envision um, and harms ourselves because we're we're pretending we're less than we are. I'm talking with Colin Bevan. He's the author of How to Be Alive, A Guide to the Kind of Happiness that Helps the World. Uh, People have a hard time changing because they feel kind of strapped into their responsibilities and um, they need to get health insurance. They need to pay the mortgage. They need to do all the things. Um, How do you – you've got something called the ukulele approach to change, which is aimed aimed at – you know, baby stepping the change in a way. Um, how how do you suggest people get started? Right. So uh, a lot of times what happens is we're like, I need to change my life. I need to change my career. I need to change where I live. We we kind of imagine that we have to change these really big things to start. And and it's scary to start with those really big things. Not least of all because we don't know whether when we get to the other side of the big change whether we'll be happy. We haven't tested out the hypothesis that we'll be happy in this new place. So the, the what I call the ukulele approach comes from a, a, a story um, in my own life about how forever I wanted to play uh, guitar. I just, I wanted to be able to play some music in my living room and um, and sing along, uh, but it, it just felt like too big a thing. And there's so many people out there that play the guitar so well. And how could you know what was the point of me playing guitar? Um, but what I found was uh, I would walk around. I live in Brooklyn, in New York, and I'd walk around the parks, and people would be out with their ukuleles, like strumming ukuleles, and and and. Um, and actually a friend had a ukulele and she taught me like four chords and suddenly I was strumming a ukulele and singing and I bought myself a ukulele and learned to play the ukulele from YouTube videos. And, and the point here is that instead of setting up this gigantic, you know, I must learn to play guitar and I must learn to play it very well, I found this instrument called the, you know, the ukulele, which is incredibly forgiving. And somebody suddenly I was going along. So, so, excuse me, similarly with our life change, like we can say, I want to live more in line with my values. And there's a story um, in How to Be Alive about a woman called Anne. And she wants to live she wants to live in line with her values, and she starts by just going to the grocery store and buying fair trade coffee. 
And she thinks to herself, that doesn't count for anything. It doesn't matter. But then she go, finds um, a fair trade coffee roaster and she starts going there and she come, becomes friends with the people who work there. And then they bring her along to a community garden. She starts volunteering at the community garden and they go to a climate march and she goes with them. And they find they're, they're all in jobs that she wishes she has. And ultimately, she starts to make connections and find a job in social justice and she actually is able to change her job. So the point is is that we start by looking for small actions we can take, finding communities that share our values, and letting those small actions unfold instead of telling ourselves, you know, these small things don't count. So, so one of your pieces of advice is give less energy to what is not true to you and just try to ease into that. Yeah, the full thing is give less energy to what is not true for you give more energy to what is true for you. And, you know, what what intrigues me about that, um, I, I worded it out that way very carefully, but really that thing, do less bad, do more good, you know, so bad, bad, again, I try to avoid the kind of moralistic approach of good and bad, but instead talk about true, what feels if we refer inwards to ourselves and sit with our bodies and ask ourselves, does it feel true for us? Does it feel right for us? So if it doesn't, if it doesn't, change it. If it does, don't change it. Like it's uh, it's not up to me to tell you what's good and bad. It's up to you and your body actually. So that's how I put it that way. What, what feels true for you? And can you give a little bit less energy for what doesn't feel true for you and a little more energy to what does? And this is, this is actually the basis of all the great world religious tradi- traditions. Just do less bad, do more good. So again, it's not, it's not an attempt to become um, to force people into religion in, in any way, but it is to say that there is some wisdom that's been existing for a very long time that suggests that the basis of life is as simple as that. Do a little bit l- less of what's not true for you. Do a little bit more of what is true for you. I think people feel stuck in a more static situation, though, a lot of the times. Like they've got to gut it out where they are, and they, they don't have room to 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 give. Yeah, I mean that that is a story that we all tell ourselves including me that there's that there's for some reason we can't do anything else and 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 that's why coming back to what we talked about a minute ago this ukulele approach this starting from where you are um so in in how to be alive um a basic a basic underpinning philosophically of the whole thing is nonviolence and 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 to not do violence against the world um and and that includes not doing violence against ourselves. So there's um, there's this. Uh, for example, sometimes I would uh, be out speaking, and people would ask me questions. And I remember one time I was standing on a stage, and a, and a, uh, a person raised her hand, and she said, "I'm a third grade teacher." She said, "How do I teach my kids how to recycle?" And I was like, "Well, didn't did didn't you just say you're a third grade teacher?" And, and uh, you know, everybody laughed. And I said, why Why would you ask me how to teach kids to recycle? It sounds like you have the expertise. And it also sounds like that's a place where you can start. So we can't all, you know, we, we may not be able to, to do big things, all of us. We may not. We may have to start small. But the trick is 
it's okay to start small, but the qu- the trick is then not to let the question stop. So the, the the question that I talk about is how can I help? This it's it's almost a vow. It's almost a vow that we all have inside ourselves already. And when it gets frustrated, um, it makes us feel bad. So how can I help? And that we hold this, we can hold this vow at all times. How can I help? And and we'll see it. We can see it on the subway. Somebody needs our help getting up the stairs. Um, we can see it in the office. Um, you know, the people aren't recycling, so we set up a recycling system. We can see it in our in our t- city. We can see it on, in our climate change when we just decide that we're going to dedicate one Saturday afternoon to go out on a march. Or, but it's not important that we all march. It's important that we all find our own ways of helping this intersection between who we are um, and what the world needs. I'm talking with Colin Bevan about some of the ideas in his book, How to Be Alive. Coming up after the break, we'll discuss the importance of finding your people. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald, and I'm talking with Colin Bevan. He's best known for his book, No Impact Man, and we're talking about some of the ideas in his subsequent book, How to Be Alive, A Guide to the Kind of Happiness That Helps the World. Um, you talk, uh, you've got a section in the book there where, um, called Finding Your People, and it's uh, interesting because it's so sciencey that there is so much science data about how much our happiness is connected to Uh, communities and people that I I didn't realize was there. Um, Talk to me about that for a second. Sure. So um, a lot of that chapter is based on the work of a man named John Cacioppi, who's actually at the University of Chicago, and he studies loneliness. And um, loneliness, he he thinks, is actually... um, uh, inherited uh, in, a, in an evolutionary way. And, and what it does is the, the point of loneliness is to, when we feel lonely, um, imagine, you know, whatever, hundreds of thousands of years ago, when we felt lonely, that meant we were on our own and unsafe. So the feeling, the uncomfortable feeling of lonely, it's loneliness, its job was to force us back into the, into our group where we were more safe because human beings, it turns out, are um, how we've adapted. We don't have sharp teeth. We can't really run that fast. How we work is by being together in groups. And so we're evolutionarily adapted to cooperate and collaborate and be together, and we feel bad when we're not together. And um, so, and there's two types of loneliness. Um, one is the type of loneliness, the loneliness for a romantic partner or a best friend, that kind of very intimate loneliness. Um, and that loneliness is characterized in our bodies. We can actually feel it in our bodies differently than the other kind of loneliness. It feels like sadness, right? The other kind of loneliness is loneliness to be part of a group. To, not just to um, be having a heart-to-heart with a friend or a lover, but but actually to be in a group talking to many people and having friends and friends who are friends with each other, so what they call an interconnected friend group. And f- strangely, we actually feel that kind of loneliness differently in our body. It feels, uh, it feels restless. Um, and if we don't satisfy these lonelinesses, if we don't, if we don't then, then we become less happy. 
And the, the, the science about the interconnected friend group is really interesting. That, that, um, that's really uh, kind of next level um, um, happiness. Right. So the, an interconnected – let's talk about that for a minute. So um, obviously um, – uh, it's good to have friends, but 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 actually, the science actually tells us exactly um, how big a friend group we should have and how it should look. And basically, the science tells us that um, our friend group, uh, our interconnected friend group, for us to be optimally happy is about between between about six and twelve people. Um, if it's more than that, we get overwhelmed with servicing our friendships. If it's less than that, we start to feel unhappy. And the other thing about it is that um, for us to feel fully satisfied, it has to be interconnected. That is to say, that my friends know each other. And the reason for that is um, is that if my friends are inter, inter if my friend group is interconnected, then let's suppose I do. Do something nice for John um, because John knows Mary. When I do something nice for John, uh, Mary hears about it and knows I'm a good player. And then when I need something, um, I don't have to turn to John, who I did something good for last time, but I can e- just as well turn to Mary because Mary knows that I'm the type of person that serves my friends. So the, that's one of the reasons why interconnection actually works, that we can build what's called social capital in an interconnected group. You know, it's interesting to think about where interconnected friends are more likely to happen. I think um, most people would say, well, a, uh, a city where there's lots of people in a, in a close space would be easier than the suburbs, which would be probably easier than living in a rural community. Although, I mean, there might be institutions in the rural community that do that, do that for people uh, or maybe a dependence thing that does that for people. But it seems almost like we're, most of us are set up to not have that. Well, if you think about it, our economy, the, the, the root of our – the purpose of our economy is not for all of us to make friends. In, in fact, if you look at a standard advertisement, um, there is an advertisement um, that, I, that I'm fond of t- talking about where uh, it's for a kind of a car and basically a dad is with his uh, two kids and um, – and, uh, as the story goes, the backstory for most of us who are dads is that we hardly ever spend enough time with our kids. And he and his two kids, um, they have a toy uh, remote control car and it breaks. So in other words, the, the dad is letting his kids down yet again. That's the, that's the implied story. And so the dad gets in his real car and puts the broken remote control car next to him. And the kid is like moving the remote control and he watches the broken car and drives his car around. And his kid's like so happy that he throws away his teddy bear because his dad's being so great. Um, and so the the, the, <laughs> the, the, the I'm laughing because it's so ridiculous. Yep. The, the, the theme of this advertisement is if you get your the right car, you'll be a good dad. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> As opposed to just being a good dad. Now, now most of us, many of us, have so many pressures on us that it's really hard to be a good dad. It's and and it's really hard to be friends that we want to be friends. It's hard to gather away, gather together um, friend groups, and that's because our entire economy is not about creating uh, community, which is what makes people happy, but about getting and buying more stuff. That's the whole myth that we have. So we actually have to work against that. We actually have to. And the reason why this talk about friend groups and getting gathering our people um, is in How to Be Alive is that, one, it's actually the thing that makes us happier to have and be part of community makes us happier than, than 
to work for and get more stuff and use our time getting more stuff. And two, because if we find the right people, that is to say, if we find the people who um, embrace the types of values that we want to work towards in our lives, like if we're feeling like we want to be more of service or we want to be more creative, then finding and being part of a friend group that also embraces those values of creativity or of service to the world um, is a way to help us move towards that too. Your friend group amps up cooperation rather than competition. And we're always told, you know, we're supposed to be competitive and beat the other guy. But that's not really what our happiness wants. Right. It's, it's, it's not what we were evolved to do. We were the way that human beings, before they lived in urban environments, survived was by cooperation with each other. Um, how does this apply to um, real life? You call the folks in your uh, book Life Questers. And um, uh, can you give us some example of people who have who've taken you up on these kind of things or who are doing this and what, what their results are? Sure. I, I mean, I can tell you in particular about people who I feature in my book who who I felt so proud to know that I put them in the book because I felt they were life questers. And one, um, so so to be a life quester, we talked earlier about how the societal myth is falling apart, but there is no new myth. That is to say that the the there have not been our society has not laid down new paths for people who see that the old myth is falling apart. And so the only thing that's left is that we actually refer deeply to ourselves and our values and our bodies and ask ourselves what what is right for me. That's that, that's back to the what's what giving more energy to what's true for me, giving less energy to what's not true for me. And so what I call the people who have the bravery to um, decide to reject the standard life approach and to take their own approach is a life quester because they're questing for a way of life. They're, and I think of them as bushwhackers. That is to say, a bushwhacker is somebody who takes a machete and goes through the jungle and they're chopping the plants down as they move through the jungle. Not that I'm in favor of chopping plants, but whatever. Um, they, they move through the jungle and it leaves a path for everybody else. So a life quester is doing service for their own lives, but it, they're also laying down a path for others. And um, shall I tell you a couple of stories of life questers? Yep. Uh, let's hear them. Okay. So, so one is my friend Kate Zidar, and she um, she did the the whole standard thing, and she went to school for uh, 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 microbiology, and she found herself in a lab where she was literally. Um, uh, dissecting dead mice, taking their brains out, and and liquefying them and putting them on slop sl- on slides. That was her job, and she was like, "I can't, I just can't do this." And she not, it was boring. It didn't feel right to her, so she quit. Um, and she ended up volunteering at a at a community garden. And uh, one of the problems this was in uh, Williamsburg in Brooklyn. And one of the problems was that the soil there was bad because of the lead content in the air from pollution that had you know settled into the. Soil. Soil. And so the soil needed to be remediated. And so she – one way to bring health back to st- soil is to, um, to, to put compost in it. And so she started uh, a compost pile in one of, one of the parks. And what she did was she took, she took a few barrels and she put cinder blocks down 
um, uh, inside the barrels so that they couldn't be easily moved by the park people. And she put them in a corner where the park people didn't care that much. And then she wrote to the mayor and asked permission to put these uh, barrels there for food scraps to be put in. Um, the mayor never wrote back, but whenever a park official challenged her in her composting in the park, she would show this letter that she wrote and say that she had permission from the, from the mayor. Um, and, and, and she ended up starting this whole community of composters, right? And you think, oh, why does that matter? A bunch of people are dropping off their food scraps and they're being composted and put in the community garden, except that here in New York, many people were doing something like that, that they were starting compost piles for people. And, um, and it's just a few years ago now that New York, the city itself, adopted curbside composting. And part of the reason why they adopted the curbside composting was because these compost piles were popping up all over the place. So that's one life quester. Um, you know, I wanted to um, ask you a bit about um, your philosophy, religious philosophy, too, before we go. And um, you're a Zen practitioner. Uh, you're a Zen teacher. And uh, how does your philosophy uh, about faith, does faith fit into this in some way? Well, I like to say that I don't really have a, a philosophy per se, that, that actually – and I think this is true. I happen to uh, practice um, with the Zen folks. Um, I'm not that fond of saying that um, uh, that I'm a Buddhist or something like that because I think that actually defining ourselves by who we practice our religions with can be divisive. Um, and I think that there are many paths up the mountain. Um, but what I in, – in the Zen tradition, in, in, in all the traditions um, – Ultimately, what's pointed to is a certain mystery, a certain uh, um, that actually all of us come from this place of not knowing that we um, we are we're we don't know what will happen when we die. I mean, there is there are we do get told stories about what will happen. Um, we don't know where we were before we were born, if we were anywhere before we born we were born. In fact, many of us don't even know. You know, it's it's, it's even leave aside the where we were, what will happen where we were before we were born and where we'll go when we die, we're kind of understanding what's going on right now is <laughs> pretty confusing. And um, so this – the tradition in which I study and, and, and Zen is the mystical tradition of Buddhism just as mysticism is the mystical tradition of Christianity and uh, Kabbalah is the mystical tradition of uh, Judaism and Sufism is the mystical tradition of Islam. <clears throat> All of these traditions point to a place before the scriptures and the dogma that is taught just directly back to this mystery and this place of not knowing. And the basic idea is that we work so hard to move away from the mystery, um, but there is relief in just returning to it. And when we return to the mystery and stop navigating our lives by these stories of what will get us what we want and what will help us avoid what we don't want, but actually just pay attention to what's happen, happening. I, uh, uh, to your article of faith, the article of faith is, is that if we really just pay attention and just have the humility to be here in this moment, then correct actions will arise. We'll automatically act with love and compassion for ourselves and for our neighbors and for the world that we live in. Colin Bevan is the author of How to Be Alive, A Kind of Happiness That Helps the world. Thanks a lot for joining us and uh, talking with us about how to be alive. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. 
Coming up after the break, we'll have uh, Monica Eng and Food Mondays, and we'll talk about pickling waste. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. According to the Natural Resources Defense Council, about 40% of American food goes to waste. And a big reason that happens is produce spoilage. One company in Chicago called Hazel Technologies has been working on a tool to slow that spoilage. And they estimate that just this year they've prevented 20,000 tons of CO2 equivalents from being injected into the atmosphere. Worldview food contributor Monica Eng recently talked to the company's CEO and co-founder, biochemist Aidan Moat, and she started by asking him how his company began. We came out in about 2015. We formed the company. Uh, the idea being that we could uh, use highly sustainable and very clever biochemistry to preserve the shelf life of produce and, and reduce food waste that comes from spoilage during the storage and transit processes. Um, so my background is in chemistry, and myself and one of the other co-founders, um, Adam Pressler, invented a, a new kind of technology that allows us to control small molecule signaling uh, in produce that is still alive and breathing. Um, and in doing so, we can actually slow down the aging process uh, as well as fight mold, fungus, and other diseases that limit shelf life. And with so much food waste out there because of uh, food deteriorating, this could be a real game changer. How did you guys come to this idea? Well, the genesis for me, I think, was pretty unique. I was a member of the Institute for Sustainability and Energy at Northwestern uh, during my Ph.D., and in the process of that fellowship, I was put in a number of courses that exposed me to the challenges in sustainability uh, in major world systems. So I looked at it and, and you think, OK, well, revolutions in clean energy have caused the price of clean energy to drop, particularly solar, to drop uh, precipitously over the last 20 or 30 years. We have cheap wind. We have cheap geothermal transportation. We have electric vehicles. But agriculture, which I view as fundamentally dependent on chemical inputs, um, really hasn't seen quite the same kind of revolution. It's still a fairly slow-moving, conservative, and chemical-heavy industry. So as a chemist, I, I thought this is an area where I can actually positively contribute. Um, we can leverage smarter chemistry to reduce the amount of chemical inputs that go into our food. And in our case, uh, designing atmospheric controls for chemistry, we can actually um, not add any chemicals at all into the food supply chain while extending shelf life for consumers. So it was a, a real intersection of what I viewed as a major world problem, you know, on the other side of that is an opportunity and my own particular expertise and the ability to interact with that problem. Okay. So just how effective and powerful is this technology and what does it look like physically? <laughs> that's, uh, that's a great question because when you tell people you're going to be treating the atmosphere of their produce, you know, it's not something you can see or, or it's, at least it shouldn't be something you can see or smell or taste. <laughs> So in terms of what we can accomplish in produce, um, you know, we typically see shelf life extensions that are on the order of, of two or three-fold the standard shelf life of, of that given crop. And um, it's a difficult question because not every crop has the same kind of longevity to begin with. So if you're talking about extending the shelf life of a banana, um, a three-fold shelf life extension might be another three weeks. 
uh, whereas a tomato, it might be another three months, depending on the state of picking. Um, and there's a few other things in there as well. We're able to preserve the nutritional quality of the produce during the storage uh, and transit process, or we enable growers to pick food at a riper state than they otherwise would in order for travel. So that actually improves the consumer experience in terms of having higher quality and better tasting produce. And the way that we do that is we manufacture active packaging inserts. Uh, so the, the best example I can give is something that we like to call the inbox sachet. Uh, sachet uh, looks a little bit like a, a sugar packet uh, or one of those uh, desiccate packets that you would find in a bag of beef jerky uh, or a box of shoes. Uh, it's about uh, it's about two and a half centimeters by two and a half centimeters, um, weighs about a quarter gram, and is capable of treating up to about a fifty pound box of produce. Uh, so very small footprint, very large impact. Uh, and what that does is a, a grower or a packer will throw that into the box when they're packing up the, the produce for distribution to retailers. Uh, the packet can uh, store and time release an active ingredient into the atmosphere of the produce during the storage and transit process. Um, so to talk about sort of the, the invisible chemistry that's going on, um, we typically use an ethylene inhibitor for these kinds of things. And ethylene is um, the gas that, that comes off of ripe fruit when people say, hey, these mangoes aren't ripe. Well, put it in a bag with a ripe banana and that ripe banana is going to be uh, releasing ethylene that will help other things ripen more. And so if you inhibit that ethylene, you're going to slow the ripening process? Yeah, look at that. You're already a biochemist. <laughs> no, that's exactly correct. Ethylene is an aging hormone. Uh, th that is a gas uh, that's emitted by produce during the aging process and it triggers a lot of responses that initially are about ripening but then ultimately become about over-ripening and, and then decay. Um, our ethylene inhibitors, when they're present in the atmosphere in very, very small concentrations, uh, they actually shut down the produce's response to that ethylene signal. And so as a result, we can lower the metabolism of the produce, essentially putting it to sleep while it travels. Uh, and then that allows the, the produce to arrive in better quality than it otherwise would. And, and we know that when people pick, let's say, peaches in California, they need to pick them in a not super ripe state because they're going to be traveling across country and you don't want them you know, jumping around and getting squashed. Same with tomatoes. Tomatoes are generally picked like hard tennis balls. Will this change things for those crops? Yeah. You know, you, you pick two really great examples of where – commercial agriculture has failed to live up to its own, you know, economic process. Peaches, the American peach industry in particular, is in very dire shape for a series of reasons, most of which are related to this intersection between what the growers have to do in order to get the peach to the, the store in edible shape uh, versus what we like to call the bricks content, the sugar content of the peach. So you like a peach when it has high bricks content. That means it's a nice sweet peach. It tastes delicious. Um, but there's an inverse relationship between the amount of time it spends on the tree and the amount of sugars that it contains. So you have growers that are picking stuff. It's nice and hard and firm and it, it passes the drop test. You can, you can move it through the supply chain without destroying the fruit. But by the time it actually ripens at the consumer side, there was no sugar in that peach to begin with. It's a bit like eating a piece of cardboard. Mm -hmm. And then conversely, if you look at you know, a, a great example is the peaches they grow down in Carbondale, Illinois – uh, everybody in the area will swear it's the best peach you'll ever have and they're very, very high sugar. But because of that, they're also very soft and very susceptible to decay. So they don't travel. So that's precisely the, the problem that we developed this technology to fix. Um, you know, spoilage is what causes a lot of this food waste in the distribution system to begin with. So you always have to keep an eye out for the big boogeyman, which is stuff going bad. But the consequences of commercial agriculture – 
which cause us to have less flavorful and less nutritious food, uh, those are also challenges that we can overcome. And, and we can do that by providing the grower with the same quality of robustness during storage and transit while still allowing them to pull fruit off the vine or off the tree in a better state for the consumer. Uh, and if you have that combination of quality and shelf life, then you've got the horses as well as the cart. That's how we look at it. And so you guys have been doing a lot of tests in your lab, and that's near um, Illinois Institute of Technology. You're basically on the campus. Tell me about some of those tests. Sure, sure. So we uh, we have an active post-harvest science group, um, you know, which is a, a branch of plant physiology uh, that has studied universities all over the world. Uh, and many great extension and co-op programs and, and many of whom we're actually partnered with, folks like UC Davis, uh, Oregon State University, Washington State, uh, University of Florida and so forth. And a lot of it comes down to you know measuring the interaction between various storage parameters and actual metrical quality. So you know, I think probably the average consumer doesn't think about quality being something that you can quantify, uh, but there are many ways to do so. One example being um, firmness. You look at the amount of pressure it takes to penetrate a certain depth into the flesh of a piece of produce and you can create a, an empirical measure uh, of the amount of firmness in that fruit. So it's a, it's a very intricate series of, of things where you have to pay attention to what the consumer wants as well as what the grower wants as well as what the retailer wants. And, and that's kind of where we position ourselves on the scientific side. And, um, and one of the things you've been testing are black figs. And so you brought me some pickled black figs because I guess you had a bunch left over. Mm-hmm. Yep. We work with a, a great farm in California called Vertical Foods. It's one of the largest fig producers in California. Um, and uh, full disclosure, the wife of the owner uh, is one of my uh, senior sales managers. Uh, so there's a deep industry connection. There. You can tell they believe in the product. You know what I mean? So uh, they sent us uh, <laughs> was essentially a pallet of black figs. Um, we, you know, we perform our studies, but then at the end of the day, somebody has to do something with the produce. So sometimes we donate it. Sometimes we uh, just divvy it up amongst the various companies that are at the office park where we're at. But I've been um, interested in the culinary arts for quite some time and uh, got into pickling and fermentation and, and various other ways of preserving uh, produce, even creating alcohol, believe it or not, as a preservative technique, right? At the end of the day, that's how you preserve the caloric content of something in a way that doesn't go bad anymore because the alcohol is a preservative. So I am a big fan of uh, using natural processes to keep stuff from going bad. Um, you know, if you, you ever want to figure out how to lacto-ferment figs, it's very quite simple. Just submerge them in a 3.5% brine for – somewhere between three and seven days, depending on how many wild yeasts you've got present. And uh, watch out for the amount of carbonation that it generates because uh, that will create a big mess if you seal it up too early. Right. You do not want any explosions. No. In, in fact, you're probably going to want to vent that when you get it okay. home just to be on the safe side. I think it's fine, but I don't want to give you a bomb. You know what I mean? Yeah. Now, I've seen a lot of sci-fi movies, and in those, there are always unintended consequences. Are you guys looking out for them? How so? And, and what might these be? Yeah, I mean that's an incredibly important aspect of of trying to put any chemistry into the supply chain. One of the reasons that I say that chemistry is fundamental to agriculture is that in general speaking, there's about a 50 percent chance that you and I are alive uh, because of a single chemical process that was invented in the, the very late 19th century, early 20th century by uh, Fritz Haber called the Haber-Bosch process and it's how we convert nitrogen into ammonia for a nitrogen source in fertilizer. And that was how we fed the world. That's how we got to the population that we have on the planet today. So you want to talk about unintended The Green Revolution, planting Rotoro. Precisely, yeah. So 
in terms of unintended consequences, you know, it's projected that the world population would only be about three and a half billion today if that process hadn't been put into commercial production. So, you know, there's always a, a realm where you have to be concerned about that sort of thing. Now, for us, we're a little bit different. And the reason that we're different is that we're not actually an active ingredient synthesis company. So we're not out there preparing new chemistries. I think there are um, a lot of apparatuses to help those companies move along. Uh, you know, you see a lot of work from the EPA, a lot of toxicology testing, a lot of human health analysis and environmental health analysis. Sometimes things slip through the cracks even. You're talking about things like chlorpyrifos or um, neonicotinoids. That's a pesticide that's not good, especially for pollinators. Mm-hmm. Exactly, yeah. So there's there's always concerns there, but we've selected the actives that we work with that are public domain actives based on their toxicology history, based on the fact that they have no incidence in human, animal, plant, or aquatic environments uh, in a 30 or so year of commercial deployment all across the world. Um, you know, we know a lot about the chemistry of the compounds that we work with. They're, they're what we call bioorthogonal, meaning that there's no uptake pathway in human metabolism. Okay. And so, you know, for the consumer, when might a consumer, you know, be eating a tomato that was transported with the aid of your product. Well, we've—I mean—we've been working with a number of growers on a on a preliminary basis in the U.S. for some time now. And in addition to the fact that we've been working heavily in Latin America, which is a large export program to the United States, so with a number of different crop categories, you know, if you've been eating apples this year, there's a good chance that you've had apples that have been treated with our product. Uh, same thing with pears over the last couple of years. Um, we're very heavy. Uh, in stone fruit, um, in particular in California. And so uh, everything from apricots to nectarines to uh, peaches and plums, um, many producers are actually using our product and it's been making its way to the retail store uh, over the last couple of years. You've got a number of tropicals. Um, we are partnered with the largest avocado grower in the world, uh, Mission Avocado. Uh, we also work with a number of the largest tropicals growers to do things like star fruit and uh, passion fruit and dragon fruit and things like that, uh, which has been a very successful program for us because of the difficulties in the tropical supply chain coming to the U.S. Uh, so, you know, there's I'd say there's an outside chance that a lot of the listeners have actually already eaten things that have been treated with our product. Hmm. And what about for the consumer? I'm I've got a, a boatload of tomatoes right now that are coming in in my garden in this late summer. Might there be an opportunity at some point for me to like stick them in my basement with a little sachet on top of a bushel? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's actually something we're really excited about. We have this very modular system with a very small footprint that can make its way into essentially any component of the agricultural supply chain. So, you know, it gives us the opportunity to work with smallholder farmers and with local uh, rooftop growers and things like that. But ultimately, uh, it's completely safe to use and deploy in consumer context as well. Uh, and so we're going through the approval steps required to generate those products. Um, but I do believe that you will see a consumer-oriented approach um, perhaps as early as about this time next year, uh, to be honest. So keep an eye out. Do you have any estimates on how many zillion pounds of fruit you've saved from going bad so far? Uh, as a matter of fact, I do. We've, we've, I don't know about zillion pounds. That would be, <laughs> that'd be remarkable. Yeah, we've only been around for four and a half years, so we're going to walk before we run. Um, but even so, over the last uh, two or three years, I estimate that we've saved um, somewhere around 200 million pounds of produce from going bad already. Uh, which is something that I'm quite proud of. Uh, this year alone, I think we've uh, we'll be offsetting 120 
a million pounds of produce from going bad. It's about 20,000 tons of CO2 equivalents we're saving from being injected into the atmosphere. Um, and all of that is a relatively small scale. I mean, that's the, the, the thing about agriculture is it's a massive, massive industry. It's the biggest industry in the world. Um, so we're scaling up into it, and that's that's part of what we're here to do. Aiden Moat, co-founder and CEO of Hazel Technologies, thanks so much for talking to me today. Thanks for having me. It's been a blast. You're the cutest thing that I ever did see. I really love your beaches, want to shake your tree. Peaches, tomatoes, everything is better if it's better preserved, isn't it there? Monica Eng, our food contributor, is here with me in the studio. And we've got a few of Aiden's figs with us. You brought his figs. That's right. So he doesn't just preserve things through this new technology, but uh, when they're about to go off, he turns them into pickles and liquor. He said, watch out, because these might um, contain about a third of a shot of alcohol at this point. And we're Facebook living it if anybody wants to see us eat this uh, on my on my Facebook account. Uh, so you want to give it you want to give it a try? Yes, I do. I it smells. We can smell yeah. it. It smells like wine. This it sure does not does. smell like um, like a straight fig or anything. Yeah. Okay. So Jerome tries it. What do you think? Hey, not bad. Wow. A mm. lot of flavor. Oh, when he said pickles, he mean pickled. This it was is um. Isn't that like a fig? I thought it. it yeah, it's salty. It's got a <laughs> brine, and. Um, and, you know, I, I've been doing some pickling myself. I took a bunch of beans from my garden, put them again in a brine, and um, it makes it taste like there's vinegar in there. And it develops through lacto-fermentation. And it's a great way to preserve stuff this time of year if you don't want it to go off. If your garden – I understand you have a lot of tomatoes in your garden too, Jerome? I sure did. I think I had to throw one out this morning. Oh, boy. When, when I lived in the former Soviet Union, everybody on their porch, on their little balcony of their, their place in their massive – would have, which are these uh, these big um, public housing complexes, would have these big things of, of pickled tomatoes that you would have with your vodka. And they were doing lacto-fermentation before it got cool with the hipsters here in the United States. So someday we'll be able to buy little packets that extend the our garden's produce from this guy. Absolutely. And he said, you know, he said, watch out for a big announcement. He was kind of hinting that's going to happen that will bring this technology to more people. And I think that the, the fewer things we throw in the landfill to produce greenhouse gases and the fewer things we throw away, the better. So I'm kind of excited about this technology. Is it better? I mean, our tomatoes, we can put them in the freezer if we catch them and things. There's other things you can do. We, we that's can, right. We can, we can do he's, – he's kind of up against some – some other things. Yeah, but this this would be at the sort of the, the, the shipping end. But Jerome, I wanted to come on in my last uh, Food Monday to toast you, to toast Thanks. Worldview, to toast food and sustainability coverage um, with with a pickled fig. And, and you know, it makes me think of Slivovica, which is that Czech um, Slovak uh, liquor. And it makes me think of Milos. And I want to toast <laughs> Milos and say thank you so much for having me on Worldview. You're welcome. It's been so fun. And I've learned so much. I'm so into, like, all these grains and stuff. It's been great. Yeah, and I just rode my bike here because of you, because you turned me into a bike rider. So thank I think, you. I think we're creating a community of people who want to do things better. That's right. Like not get packaging when they get their takeout. 
Absolutely. Monica Anger, food contributor, thanks very much. Thank you. Tomorrow on Worldview, we are going to start talking about Gandhi's 150th birthday. It's Wednesday. We will talk with Vijay Prashad tomorrow, and we'll discuss some of the real uh, heroic aspects of Gandhi and some of the myth-making that's been going on around him, and we will recall his achievements tomorrow on Worldview. Hope you can join us. You can follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Radio Worldview, and Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum, Julian Haida, and Ashish Valentine. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.